Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 28, 2014, and this is episode 1395 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, and that means we're going to have your feedback, your emails to me. You send those emails to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And I will, res uh, I won't respond back to you most likely, but you might hear yourself on the air, uh, within the next week or two. If you've sent me an email and you don't hear yourself on the air for a week or two or hear back from me directly, if you really want your question answered, you might try again because at that point you've probably fallen off of the vetting platform. And that's probably because I get, you know, hundreds of these a day and I can only use maybe a dozen a week on air. And I do try to respond to some of them offline, but I can only do so many, uh, responses by email a day. I don't have the hours in the day to match up with the emails that come in. It just doesn't work out. So formula for sending me this. Again, it goes to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And then this is the special, most important part. You need to pick one word followed by the words for Jack and uh, put those in the subject line and nothing else. So it would be like story for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, idea for Jack, you get it. That's the formula. Then you go into a very special folder that gets uh, sorted and uh, vetted for this show. Anyway, with that said, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping before I get into your emails today. Uh, first item, as always, let's take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Bulk Ammo is my source for large variety, uh, large purchase uh, quantities of ammunition. Uh, as I say frequently, there's a triangle of gun operator efficiency. There's the weapon, there's the operator, and there's the ammo. Uh, the operator needs training. The gun needs uh, maintenance. It needs to be a good quality weapon from the first uh, get-go. The ammo needs to be good quality in a large uh, quantity. Fortunately, the weapon and the ammo are things that are actually commodities and easy to buy. And if you've ever noticed, whenever there's talk of gun grabbers uh, moving forward, the first thing that becomes hard to get and goes up in price is ammo. Right now, ammo is pretty reasonably priced, everything except 22 long rifle. I don't know when the hell that's going to get sane again, but the... You know, everything else is pretty available. This is a good time to stock up and the place to do it, bulkammo.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. That's our sponsor that is the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. And I mean all the resources, from guns to gardens, from practical to tactical, and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt stuff for your solar and wind projects, it's there. You need help with your solar and wind projects, they've got the products. You want to buy long-term storage food, they've got that. You want to take some of your uh, garden production and convert it into long-term storables, and you need mylar, O2 absorbers, dehydrators, you name it. You want to do canning. You can think of it. They've got it. ReadyMadeResources.com. Remember, ReadyMade Resources, Bulk Ammo, and many other of our sponsors, along with multiple other vendors, do provide discounts to members of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. What is that? I'm glad you asked. The Member Support Brigade is how we pay the bills around here. That's where you can join as a member of TSP as part of our support brigade. You'll get great discounts like the one I just, the ones I just mentioned. A bunch of other discounts. Discounts that if you're buying stuff in the preparedness and homesteading world, will pay for your membership in full every year. I promise you, if you use the discounts, they will add up to more than the cost of membership. Um, and you can join as a member for $50 a year or five bucks a month at your choice. Military, law enforcement, peace corps. 
first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount. Whether you are active duty or prior service does not matter. You email me before you join. You put service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences, you tell me about your service, and I'll respond back to you with the discount code. Do that before, not after you join, or it's a real pain in the ass for me to try to retroactively give you the discount. You guys are supposed to be procedural in all of those uh, professions, so that is the procedure before, not after you join. With that, we've got the housekeeping uh, knocked out. Let's go ahead and get into... Uh, Some of the other content for today's show. Let's start out with today's Conflicted Monday scenario. Remember, we uh, have a great partner in the MSB called the uh, Conflicted, the card game. And it's really awesome. It's a game you play uh, with your family and friends. And you read a card and you tell people what you would do. And they all score how you, uh, how you uh, respond to what you would do in the scenario. On air, we do it a little different. I read the card. And every week, you guys come to the comments section and leave comments for me. What would you do in this scenario? Uh, then the next week, I give you a new scenario and tell you what I would have done with the previous week's scenario. Let's talk about the previous week's scenario. Last week's scenario was you're bugging out by foot and see a crashed prison bus. The inmates are stuck and trying to get out. The bus is on fire and they're begging for help. Do you use your axe to break the windshield glass and let them out, or do you let them die? And there were a lot of people that said things like, you know, aren't these guys probably chained to the bus and stuff like that? Um, I think we can get too literal with these, especially when you hear today's one. I think that the question is this. You can help, do you? I mean, that's how you, I think you have to simplify some of these. They're trying to lock you into a scenario. And, but the, the question is, you see a bunch of guys that are prisoners of the system, of the state, in a scenario where you can help them or you can let them die. Do you choose to help them or do you let them die? And remember, in the conflicted game, it is the end of the world as we know it. It is cats and dogs having puppy kittens. It is the zombie apocalypse. It is the complete far out there scenario that I say is one tenth of one hundredth of one millionth of one percent likely to happen. But in this game, it has happened. And you have to answer the question from that perspective. So there would be no one to help you if you let these guys out and they started killing you. Um, I have a real easy time answering this question. It's not even it's not even a concern for me. If I see anybody um, that that is going to die without my help, and I can with reasonable uh, certainty give them some assistance and try to help them out, I'm going to do it. Um, I don't even need to justify the way that many people did in their responses. I assume the majority of people said they would help if they could. A lot of people did express concerns like, are these guys you know chained and shackled in there? And well, maybe I can save one or two then. But if there's a way I can save them. Uh, I probably am going to because they're just fellow human beings. Uh, might one or two of them be murdering rapist pieces of crap? Yep, but the majority of them are probably in for bullshit crimes. Uh, they probably don't belong there. Um, it's, it's just a reality, and, and, and frankly, law enforcement doesn't apply to anybody in this uh, world that we're talking about, so I don't know what they're doing on that damn print post anyway. Uh, I guess it's one of the last actions of the state. Um, if I came across this right now, Right now, this minute, uh, I would do what I could to save lives. I think there's a moral imperative within human beings if we can save lives to save lives. And uh, that's just how I feel about that. I'll give you my response to today's scenario next week. Here it is for you. And this is one I'm going to simplify for you because it's a little far out there even for the game's concept that this would actually happen. But I'm going to give you the simplified version of it at the end to make your responses easier. Here's the scenario. A large gang of traveling looters captured you and your family from your retreat. 
They drove 150 miles from your location and sold you and your family off at a trading post. So basically, you were sold as slaves. A good Samaritan paid the price for you and set you free. However, he has no desire to help you any further. It is time to start over from nothing in a post-apocalyptic world. How would you go about securing the short and long-term survival of you and your family? This is a tough one. If you're thinking that doesn't sound very likely, let me put it to you this way. Whatever preps you've made are now gone. There are no more preps. Uh, wherever place you had them set aside at or whatever home you had is now not available to you. It's gone. It's been destroyed. You are far from home. You have no friends. You have no help. And you have nothing. All you have is you and your family and nothing else. And it is the apocalypse. You don't have your gun. You don't have your knife. In this scenario, you wouldn't have anything. You have the clothes on your back and you have each other. And you're in a society where things like people just coming up, capturing you, and selling you off is going on. You now have to survive. You have to pre prevent yourself from just ending up right back in the place you were 10 minutes ago, someone else doing it to you. You have no one out there that's specifically looking to help you. All you have are your knowledge and your skills and each other. How do you deal with that? That's a tough scenario. With that, let's get into a completely different scenario, one that actually happened, the history segment. All right, so the year is uh, 1395, and I have uh, one entry from Alex today, and it's kind of a weird one. Uh, weird, weird, weird. <laughs> But it does bring up some interesting discussion points. So, uh, John Eleanor Reichner. Uh, that's the title. John Reichner could, Reichner could not be could not possibly be the first transvestite, but he's the first documented one, and he's a prostitute. He calls himself Eleanor, and he's been arrested for committing lewd acts in a horse stall. No, it's not that bad, but it's close. Um, and has confessed, maybe it is that bad, I don't know, and has confessed to accepting money from women and men for sex, including members of the clergy, because they pay more. Cross-dressers are not always bisexual, but in this case, it is how Eleanor made his living. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these uh, interesting and sometimes weird history segments together for us. One should not be surprised that such sexual diversity existed in the Middle Ages. Certainly, King Edward II was suspected of homosexuality, and such sexual acts were common enough through the ages. One could surmise this because the Bible places limits on certain types of sexual expression. One does not make a law against something that people are not doing or wish to do. For example, there's no law prohibiting shoving beans up one's nose. That's because no one wants to shove beans up their nose. If they did, you can bet, sure, there would be a law prohibiting it. That interest, it's opened something interesting. Um, I'll point out something here that most people wouldn't take away from something that's this kind of off-kilter weird. Um, this is the type of thing that actually led to the Protestant Reformation. And to me, it's based on a problem that we still have today. Um And that is the clergy, supposedly being representatives to God, um, participating in lewd sexual acts that one would be arrested for. Not just breaking their chastity vows, but doing this kind of weird, twisted stuff. Having sex with a dude dressed like a woman in a horse barn. I'm as much for your individual freedom of expression as you want to have, and I don't want to control anybody's sex life at all I don't but I'll call weird weird and that's weird and uh, really weird um, but when you have clergy engaging in this behavior 
you have to start asking yourself if you're one of the people who's allowing the church to ex exist as the super state over your life. The church having as much power as the king or more because the king has power within his kingdom and the church has power within its dominion, which is most of the known world until you get over to where the Mongols are controlling things and don't give a damn and have their own way of doing things. So a citizen that's saying that this guy that's a pope or a bishop or a cardinal can have as much authority over my life as a nobleman, and he's saying that you know, we shouldn't do these certain things, and here he is in a horse stall with some dude dressed like a chick, Start saying, hey man, what is up? Let me tell you what at least I think part of the reason for a lot of this behavior uh, by clergy is through the years. It is the requirement that priests not marry that, that I think puts people into this very weird state. It's not, it's not normal for men and women to not be together. Let me just put it to you that way. Uh, and it's not, and if you know, if you want to take it to the more liberal side of things, it's not normal for people not to have a partner in their life. There are curmudgeons and people that like to be alone, but in general, people crave the intimacy of another partner in their life. Uh, that's why we have people. If we didn't have that that craving and that yearning, uh, and to go beyond just the act itself, but actually have a, a true partner. There'd be no male-female relationship that would progenerate the species in a way where people move forward and, and, and civilization advanced. And the, the church doctrine that a priest or a, a monk should not marry because they're married to God, married to Christ to be specific, is, is stupid. And you know how stupid it is? Let me give you another little history segment lesson here. You know when it started? Well, the truth is it's all over the map, and there was debate in the early church about it, but... Uh, for the first hundred years, there wasn't nothing preventing a, a priest from being married uh, and, and having sexual relationships with his wife. It was uh, in 306 that the uh, Council of Elvira issued the first written regulation requiring clergy to abstain from sex. Um, and it was even, at that point, with their own wives is how it was termed. So it was quite likely that somebody might have had a family already and then became a priest and then was said from this point forward you're to abstain. In the 5th and 7th centuries this was further uh, decreed and put harder into canon law. In the 11th and 12th century, so now now we're up into you know the 11th and 12th century, up into the year 1100, uh, we're at a point where it gets really, really formalized uh, and locked in to where you you just can't do this anymore. And, and I'll tell you what drove the majority of it. There was some doctrine from the church that drove this concept of celibacy. Um, but in general, it was kind of like, well, yeah, those are guys that think that, but this is the way we actually do things over here. Of course, priests have wives. But over time... As being a priest, uh, at least when you were upwardly mobile as a priest, someone that, that advanced to bishop and cardinal and things like that, and the church started to develop massive amounts of wealth through cooperation in the state with the state, and that would be what you'd call religious fascism, by the way. Um, the, the Catholic Church rapidly became the most uh, wealthy organization in the world, and priests began to uh, have a little bit of land, but but you know, upwardly mobile priests like bishops ended up owning lots of land. Well, if that bishop was married and had kids and a firstborn son, and that son didn't become a priest too, when he died, he got the bishop's lands, and guess what? The church didn't. 
This decision was made out of greed. It was designed to keep wealth within the church. If you had no children, you had no heirs, and therefore what you acquired during your time in service to the church became the realm of the church. In fact, I would tell you this, the, the, the entire concept of telling a grown man, um, whether he's in, living in service to God or not, that he is not to have a wife and children and fulfill the role of a male in society while teaching males in society how they should be upright and forthright as males in society is ludicrous. And it's what led, I think, even to this day, time and history of the past and today, where we have problems with you know, pedophilia, pedophilia within the priesthood. It, 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 it's, a, it, it, it's something that's going to be not an excuse, but sooner or later a natural consequence. If, if man is not fulfilling his roles in society, uh, that he is hardwired to do so for long enough, some portion of those will reach into the realm of perversion. And while I don't judge a lot of things that people do on their own time and in their own way, when an adult, whether it be male, female, male, male, female, female, I don't care what it is, when an adult victimizes a child, I call that what it is, a perverted crime. And, and my personal feeling as a, a former Catholic is that my former church is out of its freaking mind with this uh, continual uh, uh, holding on to uh, celibacy within the priesthood. And I think it leads to nothing but problems and misery. Anyway, my thoughts in general, since I've freed myself from organized religion, it doesn't directly apply to me, but it does hurt other people. I guess that went longer than I intended. Let's get into something now, some feedback from the audience. Um, I, like I say, I don't get to everybody's feedback, but when I get the same feedback from like 80 people or more in a week, I know it's something I need to cover. And this week, something a lot of you sent me is called the Tree of Forty Fruit. Uh, the gentleman who is responsible for this amazing feat uh, recently gave a TED Talk, and rather than try to explain to you what it is, I'm going to play his TED Talk. There's a little bit of graphics and uh, visual support in this video. I'll put a link to it in today's show notes so you can watch it for yourself, but I think you'll get 99% of the gist of it by hearing the guy that created it tell you about it, and then I'll come back with my thoughts on it. Tree of Forty Fruit is a single fruit tree that grows over 40 different varieties of stone fruits, including peaches, plums, apricots, nectarines, cherries, and this year we'll know if it grows almonds. Um, throughout the, mo the majority of the year, it's a normal-looking fruit tree until spring when it blossoms in all these variegated tones of pink and white and crimson. It returns to an ordinary-looking fruit tree until it starts to grow 40 different types of fruit. In order to start this project, I realized that I needed to collect hundreds of varieties of stone fruits. And after scouring New York and finding only a few growers that were actually growing stone fruits, I realized the extent to which we've created these massive monocultures. Um, to give you an example, the majority of stone fruits now are grown in the Central Valley in California, whereas the majority of apples are grown in New York and Washington State. The one place where I was able to find stone fruits was at this orchard at the New York State Agricultural Experiment Station in Geneva. It turns out that central New York during the 19th century was one of the largest producers of stone fruits and that this one single orchard was the 150 to 200 year history of that industry and contained all of the heirloom, native, hybrid, and antique varieties. The problem was is that they were going to tear this orchard out due to a lack of funding. Um, 
up until that point, I grew up on a farm, um, but I hadn't really thought about farming for about 20 years until I found out they were going to tear this orchard out. And for some reason, I felt that it was tragedy. And so I picked up the lease on the orchard and preserved it until I could figure out what to do with all the varieties. And so this is my nursery. I keep dwarf stock trees, or what I call stock trees, where over the past five years I've methodically taken all of the heirloom, antique, and native species and grafted them onto my trees. From there, uh, this nursery also is where I grow the tree of 40 fruit. And so I start the tree of 40 fruit as rootstock, where I take one of the varieties from one of my stock trees, put it onto a root structure. After two years, it's pruned back to create an open center or vase shape, four or five primary branches. After two more years, it looks something like this. So everywhere where you see a white, uh, white paint, that's where are different branches. The process I use for doing the grafting is called chip grafting. And for that, I take a sliver off of, a, off of one of the trees. It includes the bud. I insert it into a leg-size incision in the working tree, tape it, let it sit and heal in all winter, and then I prune it back and hope that it grows. A few more years, so this is probably about five to six years total, the tree looks something like this. You can see the red branches that indicate where a different variety grows. This is how the, the trees are then diagrammed. They're all color-coded diagrams to show you the years and what variety. So I work with over 250 varieties of stone fruit now. What I've done is I've created this sort of comprehensive timeline of when they blossom in relationship to each other so that that way I can design and essentially sculpt a tree and how it blossoms. Eventually, those blossoms become fruit. And so these are plums that I took from just one of the tree of 40 fruit in just one week in August. For a variety of reasons... Um, you know, we continue to lose variety and diversity in the fruit that's available for us. And working with commercial growers, I found that the rationale in that and in what varieties are actually grown is determined by how long it will keep. The second is the size. Is it a single serving size? The third is how is its presentation? That is the color. Uh, people generally don't like a yellow plum. Um, and then finally, after all of that's considered, is the taste. That's the reason why there's thousands of stone fruit varieties, but yet only a few are actually ever seen at a market. And so I look at the Tree of Forty Fruit as an artwork, a research project, and a form of conservation. As an artwork, what it does is it interrupts and transforms the everyday. As a research project, it creates one of the first comprehensive timelines of when all these varieties blossom in relationship to each other, which becomes important when we consider uh, pollination. And finally, as a form of conservation, by taking all of these heirloom, antique, and native species, grafting them onto the trees of 40 fruit, and then placing them throughout the country, in some small way, I'm creating my own type of diversity and preservation. So, thank you. Uh, first, let me say I think this is fascinating. Um, I have a little bit of a concern that maybe the project isn't as advanced as the 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 whole presentation would lead one to believe and, and the reason is in the graphic that i see for the uh, 40 fruit tree um in maturity is that the tree is clearly a cgi graphic i see some pretty cool looking trees uh having been grafted and made but 
I think the big giant one that actually makes all 40 might be a little bit in the future. I don't really know because the one picture he showed did show a whole truckload of different varieties of fruit picked off one tree. So I don't know. It's just a little weird to me that that, that graphic like of this hovering beautiful tree is not really a real tree from what I can see. So it's a little bit of an issue for me there. Um, in the end, he's got some awesome thing going on here. And I think there's a bigger lesson in this than just the tree. And then I'm going to come back to the tree and kind of the mind that has to be thinking this way to do something this monumentous and how that actually helps the first thing that I'm going to talk about. So what I actually think the bigger lesson here is you have one man that goes on a quest to find something. Where are all these varieties of stone fruit? For those that aren't sure what that means, cherries, plums, peaches, nectarines, apricots. Those are all stone fruits. And if you just think about when you when you cut one open and you look at the bit, one big pit in there, you can see why they would call it a stone fruit. It looks like a stone. And he finds only a few varieties here, there, and elsewhere. And he goes on a quest to find this, and he finds this old orchard with all of these crazy different varieties of native and heirloom stone fruits in, in New York, which is not a place you think of really when you think of stone fruit as, as a production area for the United States. In fact, some stone fruits you really think of as being far more southern as far as their their orientation uh, as being optimum because a lot of them require a lot of light and a lot of heat and a long season to ripen. But all of these ones obviously do okay at least in New York. And there's plums that, you know, Mark Shepard's growing uh, in USDA Zone 4 in Wisconsin, which is, is, is a bit colder than this area of New York that this guy's in. So there's certainly plenty of them there. But, but he goes on this quest and he finds this thing, and he finds it just in time where they're about to destroy it. That's, that was my big takeaway from this. And he said, I picked up the lease. I picked up the lease on this. So don't destroy it. I'll pay for it. Let me preserve it. And if there's an example of one person making a difference, boy, there it is. Not let me do a Kickstarter. Not, I mean, apparently he had enough financial means, and it probably wasn't that expensive because it's just the land lease, right? So if he's leasing the land, then he can manage the land. So he just picks up a lease in the state and says, I'll just, I'll just take a lease on the land. And, and he did it, and then he immediately took action and began taking scion wood, which is trimmings off of all these different varieties, and grafting them onto rootstock. So that eventually, if he could no longer keep up this lease, and, it, and the plans went ahead to, to tear this old orchard out, all of the varieties would be preserved. And there's probably a lot of places right now with heirloom varieties of trees and shrubs and bushes and things that are perennial that can be grafted and preserved that are in the same state of emergency, or could be. And that by learning a simple skill, how to grow, gra grow rootstock and how to graft onto it, that anybody that really wants to could probably find somewhere where they could begin helping the preservation work of all of these varieties that took centuries of human development to come up with. Um, that is a big takeaway for me on this. Another big takeaway is what he was when he was saying, and I knew this, but just to hear somebody say it yet again, what are the first things that people look for when they're selecting a variety for commercial production? And the, the biggest thing is how long does it store? How long does How long can I take to get it to market? And you can't fault a commercial producer producing metric tons of this stuff for thinking that way. You really can't because something always goes wrong. 
And if you're sitting on a bunch of fruit, tons and tons and tons of fruit, and there's a two-day delay in getting it to a, a customer and it goes bad, think of how much money you've lost that year, probably your entire profit for the year. You might be out of business. So you can understand why they do, but it also talks. It also speaks to the problem we have. If we're selling in a local markets the way that we used to, that would be less of a concern because you would know when your fruit's coming ripe and your customer would know and your customer's ready to receive. And people would be eating seasonally and locally, again, the way Chef Keith Snow teaches us how to cook. So that's another big takeaway for me in it. Now let's talk about the project. How practical is one tree that grows 40 different fruits and uh, maybe almonds as well? Uh, almonds, for those who don't know, are very closely related to peaches. In fact, if you look at a peach pit, you'll see how closely related they are. Uh, it'll make sense right away, uh, especially if you, uh, if you crack one open and look at what the, the inside of a peach pit looks like. Don't eat it, though. I'll, I'll just leave out why. You can look it up if you want to. But peach pits are not for eating. Um, but a peach and an almond very, very closely related, and, and just basically it's tweaking of, of, of selection that led one to the world of almonds and one to the world of peaches. So is this practical? I don't think so. I, I really don't. I, I think it's cool. I'd like to have one. Uh, I do my best to make it as successful as possible. From what I can see, that this is not something you can buy in a bucket or a bare root and stick in the ground and have all 40 varieties grafted on. When he was showing the images, it's very clear that at some point, this tree has to be very large to get all of these different grafts onto it. And at some point, it has to go into the ground. And as it continues to grow, it's overgrafted uh, so that you have you know, a main limb coming up off it, and maybe you have a graft of a certain cherry, and then after that you have a graft of another cherry in the same main limb. So it's not just grafted to the main body of the tree. It's grafts to grafts to grafts, and the tree has to get quite sizable for this to happen. So at some point it's more of a sculpture artwork type thing that there's this living tree, and it's now up to 15 varieties, and it'll take years to get it to 40. So it's something that you would have to participate in if you wanted one, to a large degree for something that I don't know how practical it is. But I also look at this a lot like Jeff Lawton's Greening the Desert. There are, worldwide I would say tens of thousands of people, and I would say in this audience it would be no stretch to say thousands of people, who their first exposure to permaculture and the belief that this works was a little five-minute hokey video that Jeff Lawton put together long before he had all the high-end video production capabilities he uses now called Greening the Desert. And the intention of Greening the Desert was never, let's all go out and buy waste desert land in the crappiest environment we can find a, uh, and put a garden in there and build a permaculture paradise in the worst of the worst part of the desert. What the point of Greening the Desert was, was look what we've done here. And if we can do that here, if you have anything of better quality, what could you do? And when people see something taken to the extreme and it works, they go, you know what? If that person can do that, then I can do something. And I think that's the purpose of this tree. To, that, and it might not be the, the gentleman's purpose, but I think that's the, the higher purpose of this tree. Many times we do things for a purpose and the universe kind of goes, yeah, I got my own ideas about that. Some people would say God does, however you want to phrase that. And that gets magnified into a larger purpose. And I think the larger purpose of natural magnification here is, oh my God, 
Oh my God, look at that. What could I do in my backyard? What if I had five trees? And each of those five trees had five different uh, varieties grafted onto it. And now those five trees produced 25 varieties. And what if five of them never really worked out and I ended up with just 20 varieties off five trees? How magnificent would that be in a backyard in suburbia? And what would be the impact if, uh, if 10,000 people did that with multiple different varieties of things? It didn't necessarily stick to stone fruit. Stone fruit has so many permutations and varieties. That's probably one of the reasons he picked it. But this could be done with apples. Get a good nursery catalog. Look how many varieties of apples there are. You know, it could be done with pears. It could be done with a lot of things. But stone fruit lets you take it to a real extreme. That's probably why he settled on that. Anyway, I thought this was really, really amazing, and I wanted to share it with you. I have a link again to the actual video in the uh, show notes today. Let's move on to another one. The next question is one of these ones I'm always a little bit uh, leery about. This comes from Jake in Virginia, and Jake says, I have two boys, three and one. I'm thinking, I think I'm doing a good job of bringing them upright, but I would like to hear your comments or suggestions on what a parent can do with kids uh, to set them on the right track. We're outside all the time, and I have a fundamental belief that they're more li- the more they're exposed to the outdoors, our garden, the woods, and whatever, then the more likely they are to want to have something to do with it in the future. I guess I would like to hear if you have any more specific ideas on things we can do outside or in, I guess, to help them down the road to being more aware in general. I hope you get the drift of what I'm looking for. Thanks for all you do, Jake. I am not a child psychologist and don't pretend to be one. I don't even play one on TV. But I do have a lot of thoughts on raising resilient children in a world of teacup children. And I think you're definitely on the right track. And I also think they're one in three. And I think that means you don't need to stress too much right now. If you, if you, if you keep their diapers changed and, and, and raise them to a point where they can communicate well, three, four, five years old and have good conversations and take care of themselves and tie their shoes right and stuff like that, you're doing pretty well. And if you're exposing them to the outdoors during all this period of time so that they're not afraid of the outdoors but encouraged by the natural beauty around them, you're on the right track. Specific ideas, I think that, again, I talked about this recently when I was talking about the difference between men and women, and I have to tell you that I'm not the greatest in the world at dealing with children at that age, that I really enjoy dealing with children like from five on, so I'm a little weak in the age bracket that they're in. I am a very logical person, and I deal much better with children when they're old enough that I can have you know a rudimentary conversation and we can understand each other and, and come to a logical conclusion with each other. And so that just works better for me. And I've never been a parent to a, a child younger than about six years, seven years old, like just how old Matthew was when I met Dorothy. So I'm limited there. I'm basically a three-year-old grandson now, and um, you know I'm working on that, but still. So I, I can tell you that What you do at this point, I think you're doing well, and you're doing as well as I could advise. And there's only so many things you can really do structured with children of that age. And even as they get older into that age that I am more comfortable in, in interaction with, children have short attention spans. And trying to force them into something, I think, is the biggest error that we make. I think that... The best thing we can do for children is to put them into positive environments. So into the outdoors, into uh, act, you know, physical activity, into mind-engaging activity. 
And as long as they're not sitting in front of a TV rotting away listening to a purple dinosaur nonstop or playing a video game nonstop, if you can get them engaged in doing anything, let them self-lead. Especially as they get a little older and, you know, it's like, I want them to read. Well, let them read whatever they want. As long as they're reading, that mind is engaged that way. I think the other thing we can do for our kids is not to always give them an answer to a question, but to actually lead them to an answer in the question. So, you know, I don't care if that's about outdoors, indoors, academia, otherwise. I don't think it matters. I think that when a kid says to you something today like, why is the sky blue? The, you know, the countless one of a hundred questions every child has. Why is the sky blue? I think I would say, the first thing I would say is, why do you think that it's blue? And the answer is probably not going to have to do with the curved atmosphere and the reflection of light in the, in the, the color spectrum. But that answer might be far more valuable to that kid at that time because they had to think about it. And you, and you might say, well, that's, that's really cool. And that shows that you're using your imagination and that you're interested. And if they say, I don't know, they, then just say, you know what? It's okay to be wrong. Just guess. Why do you think it's blue? And they might say, because it looks good that way. And they might not be entirely wrong about why light filters to that color, that the fact that it's visually appealing to a human being might be why we perceive it as blue. They might not be wrong. That maybe it doesn't have something to do with blue sky is good for all life on the planet, for all we know, at a higher level. But they don't have the actual answer to the question there. But, boy, they're thinking. So then I would say, you know what? Let's look it up together, and let's find out why. Well, do you know? I, I do know, but I want to teach you how to learn. So then look it up with them. Just put it on, the, on Google or something and find a website about it, and then let them read as much as they can, and what they can't read, you read to them. And if it's written at a level beyond their ability, make sure that they don't understand it before you go breaking it down and make it simpler. You make it simple for them. And don't make it like, go look it up for yourself. There's a point for that. I'll tell you how that works. By the time my son was about 11 or 12 years old, he'd be doing his homework, and he'd say, how do you spell whatever? And I'd say, D-I-C-T-I-O-N-A-R-Y. He'd go, what? I'd say, what did I just, he, oh, oh, use the dictionary, right? So <laughs> there is a place where you just say, hey, look, you know what, you're, you're now at a level where you're able to get that answer for yourself. I expect you to have the initiative to go do it. But especially when they're little and they've got all that inquisitiveness, harness it then and get them trained on how to get their own answers. This is what leads to critical thinking. The, the problem that, we have, that I have with young people today, and, and when I say young people, I mean people as old as me, they can't think for themselves. They, they can't process information and make a decision or a determination. They, they expect to be told what to do, then told how to do it, and then the ones with good, you know, good work ethics will do it exactly the way they were told. But the second something prevents them from achieving that goal, as they were described, they, they're stuck. They can't figure out how to make an impromptu decision and go around it. They, they live in terror of being wrong. And the reason they live in terror of being wrong is because they are put through an educational system that says there's the right answer and a wrong answer, and I'll tell you what the right answer is, and you regurgitate it, and I'll give you an A. So don't, don't create that learning dynamic for your children. As far as outdoor activities, I think you get them into the outdoors and expose them to everything. And the stuff they love, do that with them. Stuff they love, do that with them. Have fun with them, man. Give them a job. 
Here's a job for your kids. Now, your kids are a bit young for this, but as they get older, I think this is an awesome job for kids. So there's one thing that kids know how to do better than adults. We used to know how to do it when we were kids, and we freaking forgot. And that's really how to have fun. Children know how to have fun. So give your kid a job. Say once a week, and you can set the parameters because you're the customer, right? So if you said you want a consulting from me, and I said, fine, my consulting rate is uh, $300 an hour. And you said, fine. And I said, I'm going to give you consulting on how to ride a, a pygmy horse. You'd say, oh, no, 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 no. I want, Jack, from you, I want consulting on business or permaculture or whatever. Something you know I have knowledge in and you want to learn, right? So you're the client and you want to learn how to have fun um, in the woods. So you give your kid a job, pay him a buck or two or three, whatever you want. And say, you know what, every Wednesday at X time, we're going to have a um, fun day. And since you're a kid and you know more about fun than adults do, daddy or mommy or whatever is going to pay you Two bucks an hour for one hour to be my fun coach and to show me how to have fun, but you have to do it in a di every week wherever I want to be. So we'll go somewhere and you show me how to play make-believe or how to build a Ford or whatever you want to do. It's up to you. You're in charge as long as it's safe and as long as it's wherever I want to do it at it. Now you're teaching and you're learning. And the way you know that you're teaching is if you're learning while you're teaching, then you're actually teaching. And when your student begins to teach you, you're, tre you're treading right at the edge of mastery. You haven't quite become a master teacher, but because it's too easy to get that far. It's too easy to get to the point where your students start teaching you. There's some more tips to becoming a master teacher, and there's some more milestones that maybe I'll talk about in the future. But the first... The first thing that heads you right into mastery as a teacher is to, is to get to a point where you are learning while you teach and your students are the ones doing the teaching back to you. And you'd think that if that leads to mastery as a teacher, that there'd be a hell of a lot more master teachers or very close to master teachers. And you'd wonder why more don't do that, since it is that simple. It's simply student-led education. And that's because it requires humility. See, most people that are teachers as a profession have a very hard time with accepting the fact that they'll have students that will quickly master the material they're teaching and know more than them about it because they went to school and they learned and they have a degree and they are certified by the state, which is the ultimate god of society that structures the world. And that's what makes them a hero, as we all know public school teachers are heroes. No, they're not. They're absolutely not. I won't go into a tirade on public education today, but that's the mentality. Teachers want to hold on to knowledge and give the student that which they believe is part of the lesson plan for the student to regurgitate. And that takes a lot of ego and a lot of attitude and a lot of belief that my knowledge is superior to your knowledge. Whereas the right way to educate and be a master teacher, and that's what you want to be to your children, to be a master teacher doesn't mean you have to be an expert. It means you need to be a master at conveying that which you know and putting it into the hand of your students so that they can harness it, utilize it for themselves. See, I'm going ahead here with where I said it wouldn't go. And build on it to the point where they can actually not only apply it, but learn more from it than you knew yourself. Okay? And that requires a totally different outlook on what it means to be a teacher. Teachers in general, classically trained teachers, believe that it works this way. Knowledge is static. 
Okay, and it's only added to by special qualified people that go through religious academic standards and requirements to add to the knowledge. And that knowledge is concrete and intact. The knowledge needs to be mastered, and then the knowledge needs to be packaged, and then the knowledge needs to be delivered to the student in a framework and time of the teacher's choosing, and to prove that the student has learned the material, they must be able to regurgitate it, and take a test and prove that they remember it and recall it. And it works about as good, oh, I don't know, as putting your penis into a beehive. It really does. Because if I took the average student who got an A in fifth grade today and sat them down and gave them quite a few of the tests that they took and got A's on when they were in fifth grade, they could not get an A on the test. Again, much less the people that went through college get an A on a test they took uh, as a sophomore in college and got an A on in college. So the, the clearly the, the, the metric of re recalling and regurgitating the information doesn't happen, again, about as productive as putting your penis in a beehive. You'll get a result, but you probably don't want it. Okay? If you actually look at education for what it is, education cannot be packaged the way that we try to package it. All that can be done with education is the initiation of a discovery process because the, the reality is that Knowledge is not finite, and information is not finite. Information and knowledge are infinite. There's a billion ways to stack three pieces of knowledge and combine them together so that they create new permutations and new learnings. So, so, so knowledge and what is the totality of reality Okay? What works and what doesn't. What's possible and what's impossible. These things are infinite. Completely and totally infinite. And that means that they all already exist, whether anybody's formulated them or not. And if you actually want to educate somebody, you have to teach them to reach into this infinite knowledge and assemble from it with practical, yes, down-to-earth rules. Two plus two is four. Okay? A square has four sides and can be used to build a box when it's made into a cube. Right? There are certain fundamental realities of logic, but when a person understands these are truths that we know by the laws of physical limitations in this sphere of our, of our influence in our world, in this, this point in space-time, right? these, are, these are the rules, these basic engineering concepts, mathematical concepts, historical context, human dynamics, but all of these things exist as a means to an end. And think of the, the universe, the, not just the universe as a whole, like the, the, the totality and oneness of the universe and multiverses and quantum mechanics, let that go. But the universe of knowledge, the universe of the possible, is like a giant cloud. And what it's up to you to do with that knowledge is to reach up into that cloud using what you do know and what you want to know and what you want to do and pull out of that cloud the missing pieces and assemble them with that which is already known and change the world in your little place. And when you hear me rail on public education, it's because that is how you actually teach. That's what I try to do for you. That's why so many times you listen to me and you go, well, what if you did this? What if you did that? What if you added this? What if you took these two things and put them together? Because that's how I've been teaching you for six years whether you knew it or not, whether I knew it or not when I started. I've known it for a long time, but I'll be honest with you. I didn't know that's what I was doing when I, when I started teaching long before I did this show. 
when I was in telecommunications and sales, and I would go in and teach clients how to develop network solutions, I realized now that that's what I was doing. That if I can get you thinking outside the box, because I'm a sales consultant, I'm selling you a piece of hardware. I know I've trailed from the, 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 uh, the question a little bit here, but this really does answer the question. It answers how you teach people, and that's how you teach your children. So I know that I'm sitting down with a whole bunch of engineers, and if I go into a cont typical consulting sales conversation with these gentlemen, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to try to prove how smart I am to them. And even though I might know more about troubleshooting and problem solving and, and, and changing what they think has to be into what could be, if I go with a technical attitude, if I go with, well, here's my box and this is what it does and this is all you need attitude, they know so much more about their world than I do that there's no possible way that what's going to happen is I'm going to win because what's going to happen, we're going to end up in an adversarial who's smarter relationship and they're going to quickly prove to me when it comes down to the mechanical aspects of things, they are. But if I take the consulting role of teaching them, hey, look, here's one way to adapt this. Imagine if we did this, this, and this. Well, what would you do? And I tie them into that knowledge base and say, there's a, there's a whole bunch of solutions here we haven't had. They then begin educating me, and through the process of educating me, they educate themselves, and they lead themselves to a solution that neither of us could have come to by ourselves. And in the sales world, I get the sale, and in the parenting world, I get a genius for a child. At least that's how society will judge him. What I actually get is a fully realized and complete human being. It's not about whether or not they're outside or inside. It's about making education the process of discovery so that it's exciting and it has value to a child. When a child starts to learn, you know what? This is what learning is. Learning is I can find out all this stuff that people already know. I can figure out shit I want to get done. And I can take all the stuff people already know, and maybe it's how to get that done, but then if I want to make it better or faster or more interesting, I can go find my own knowledge that no one's ever discovered yet and put it together. Or maybe actually people have discovered knowledge piece A, B, and C, but nobody ever connected them together before. And I get to do that, and I get to create. That leads you to mastery as an educator. When, you're, when your children are, or your students are not just teaching you, They're not just educating you. They're not just learning you. They're not just help, you know, helping you learn. And you, you've gotten so far beyond the, the, the ego problems that most educators have. But you actually get to the point where your student isn't just learning and evolving and developing their own critical thinking and knowledge, that they're actually creating things that never existed before through the assemblages of them. Then I've gone ahead and explained the whole thing. You're now a master educator. Let's take another one. Here's a question from Sean. Sean says, how does a Kickstarter fundraising campaign work? What are the pros and cons and what is it good for? I hear everyone, including yourself, talk about Kickstarter funding. What is it good for? What are the basics of it, etc.? Uh, it seems like there would be a lot of potential for scams on it. Sean, um... Well, scam is a relative term, I, and, and I think that's actually the main purpose of Kickstarter as when you think of Kickstarter as a, a company or similar companies to them like Indiegogo. And they, they offer quite a bit of an assurance against a scam if you want to talk about it from the standpoint of if the project funds and you back the project and you said, when it's over, I want my... Permaculture card deck, for instance, that Paul Wheaton did uh, uh, something for. The, the company does provide some assurances that the product actually gets to the customer. 
Um, especially if the, the person offering the product ever wants to do business that way again. And the company itself, Kickstarter, takes a fee. I believe it's 8% in return for running the Kickstarter campaign and hosting a web page. And there's a staff there that helps you set up and develop your Kickstarter uh, that some people tell me has been quite advantageous to them. Uh, it also works this way. Until you get enough backers that your project is going to fund at at least the base level. So there's what's called goals and stretch goals in Kickstarter. So let's say my goal is a $10,000. And I need, if I say flat out, if I don't get $10,000 worth of orders for this new product, I can't develop it and deliver, you know, X number of products. So if I get $8,000, I can't do this. And uh, so if that is the case and your project, you know, funds to $8,000, you basically don't get any money and the person never gets charged. So when you go on Kickstarter and you're going to be a backer now, so let's say you're doing a project and you say I need 10 grand and I say fine, I'll, I'll back you at 200 bucks. I want this thing you're making. And if it fails to fund, I never actually pay the money. So I, I use Amazon, my Amazon account to, to, to set up payment to the project. So there's this middleman that, that specifically is is offering the credibility of they're on Kickstarter. That means we vouch that this is at least real, not that they'll succeed, but hey, that you know they're legitimate enough that they do actually have a plan to deliver this uh, this thingamajig or deceer or whatchamacallit thing that they say they're going to do. Um, I think that's its only real advantage as far as I'm concerned. I I, I really do. I think that's its only real advantage because I think otherwise. They take an awful big piece for doing an awful little bit, and they put an awful lot of restrictions on you. And what I mean by that is, so let's say, let's say when I did the Perma Ethos PDC, if I wanted to run that there, well, I couldn't have just said, "Hey, it's 300 bucks to be a founding member, and here's what you get." I would have had to offer ways for people to contribute at lower levels, which we didn't want to do. Um, you know, there has to be multiple packages, and people have to get something. You know, once you go over a certain amount, and and then if you're going to keep selling it, you have to sell it through Kickstarter for either 30 to 60 days. Um, to me, what Kickstarter does is provide you a web page. I mean, that's it, one page on their website. Now, there are some things that you can consider if, because here's the here's in the end. So now you've set up your deal with Kickstarter, you've made your video, your promotional material, everything. You've made your case to the market. If you back me, I'm doing good stuff. Here's what it'll be, and here's what you'll get as my backer. And Kickstarter puts it up there. And then they go, have at it, boy. Promote it. And yeah, it's on the Kickstarter website. If somebody's really looking for it, they'll see it. And you, they might see it as a they back one project and yours is similar. They might see your project, like an associated product type thing or something. But really, they don't do shit. They don't do shit. It's up to you. Promote your own shit. Get a PR company. Run pay-per-click on it. Google. It's up to you. It's yours. So you could set it up, run it yourself, and you're still going to be the one promoting it. But if you have significant horsepower and you can get a lot of backers really, really fast, then you might get featured on their homepage or their featured projects or something like that. And that exposes you to this massive group of people who have backed previous projects. So... I think it can be a valuable tool, but I think every person needs to evaluate it individually whenever they're coming out with a new product or service or something like that. Um, you know, it's ideally suited for the entrepreneur that says, I want to build X. Nobody builds X. Here's what X will look like when I'm done building it. Here's what it does for you. Here's why you'll want one. 
to, you know, here's a prototype. I actually have built X, but I can't build 50Xs or 100Xs or 1,000Xs. I need material development. I need tooling. I need enough of an order to place a minimum order with a manufacturer or an injection molder or whatever it is. So I'm bringing this idea to you, my market. I'm asking you to invest in it before it really exists. This is why it's good for humanity. This is what it'll do for me. This is what it'll do for you. Please back it. And you can say, I want one, and I'm going to pay for it. And you might, this is one thing that a lot of people have twisted logic about. A backer on Kickstarter often gets pissed off if a year later, when that company's established and functioning and running and going forward, if that company turns around and they sold the product for $200 on Kickstarter and all of a sudden they're retailing it for $149.95. I paid more for it and I was a backer. Wah! You big freaking baby, that's the point of being a backer to something. I mean, the guy's developed it now. He's got economy of scale going. That was the entire point. He's selling it for less and he's profitable. You should be happy because you held back it. Don't be a big freaking baby. And that's another problem I think you have with Kickstarter is that there is that attitude in some part of the backer community. They're like, I should get the best deal because I was a backer. No, clown. If you're buying this product before it exists, the person hasn't actually gone into production yet. It's the business's responsibility to make money for itself. That's how it stays sustainable and reliable and continues to serve its customers. And if a, if a business can cut its price and increase its total profit, it should. As long as it can do so without compromising quality or creating pain-in-the-ass customers. There are customers that cost too much to serve. And if you go too low on price, trust me, you attract customers you don't want. But a business, by you know the most general rules... If I can cut my price from 180 to 160 and I can handle the additional customer service and it doesn't create, let's call it a gutter level customer, right? And the, the business will now make more money total, the end of year profit will be higher, then I should cut that price. And I shouldn't keep it artificially high because somebody else paid more for it in the future. And if that was the case, the market would be completely backwards. That's not how the market works. You think you pay as much for an iPhone 4S today as you did the day it came out on the market? What did what did a freaking Trash 80 computer cost back in the 1980s? What's it worth today? You have to use your brain and see. Sometimes the market doesn't. I think when you have a direct relationship with your customer, that you're you're less likely to deal with that. So personally, would I use Kickstarter myself? Probably not. I don't want to be told I have to do multiple levels. I don't want to take a customer I don't want. I don't want to be able to say, I just I don't want you as a customer. And, and have another company say, no, you have to take them. They want to back you. You have to take them. I don't want to give Kickstarter 8% of my money for hosting a web page that I'm capable of doing myself. And I don't want to be tethered to my obligations to Kickstarter in the future. Though I think a lot of small entrepreneurs really benefit from Kickstarter, Indiegogo, etc. That's the basics of how they work. And I think when you start looking at models like that, there's probably never been a better time to be an entrepreneur trying to get funding for something. Now, here's the negative of Kickstarter. It doesn't make the money funding for a company. It makes the money what it is, revenue for a company. What's the difference? If I actually take investors and fund a company, and they're owners in the company or investors in the company, then we've capitalized the money. We've capitalized revenue. And that means there's no tax consequences for the money going in. 
Okay? And that would be the most optimum way to get money into a company. One way or another, get it into the company without it being taxed as revenue to the company as profit. It's operational capital. Okay? But the way that Kickstarter works is you're just pre-selling stuff. So it's all revenue. So it's all taxable. And I believe there's a lot of people using Kickstarter under the false notion that it's a gift. The, the customer's giving me a gift. I'm gifting them back a product as, as, a, as a show of appreciation. And it's a gift. And that means I don't have to pay taxes on it. And I think you're going to see large numbers of people in the coming years slaughtered in IRS audits due to Kickstarter campaigns and failure to render taxes on the revenue taken in. And very few people actually, I think, um, or a very small percentage of people using Kickstarter as entrepreneurs fall into that category, but there's a lot of people doing it. So a small percentage of a big number is a big number. And that's something you need to be aware of as well. If you go to Kickstarter and you say, I'm going to make X and I need to raise $20,000 to make X, and if I make that, I'll send everybody that participated at this level higher an X, and people that participated down here plans for how to make their own X, and you do it and you sell it and you deliver it, All the money you spend as an expense to deliver and develop the product is expensable and comes off the profit, but the difference between the two, what you took in versus what you spent to deliver, is profit, and it's subject to income tax. And that means if you're doing something significant, you may really want to have a conversation with a tax attorney and a CPA before you do it. So there you go, the ins and outs of Kickstarter and uh, what it does for you and what it doesn't do. All right, I got another one here for you. This one's from Karim, and this is uh, this is another example of Jack being right. In fact, this is the subject says. Karim writes, China's China, and Jack's right again. This is another one of those things you know you don't want to be right about, but you know you are. So for years, I'm talking back probably to the first year of TSP, definitely by the second year of TSP, as I was talking about. China's coming forward to becoming the the global economic uh, superpower that it's that it's on it's it's destined to become. China will be the number one country economically as far as uh, total dollars to, to, or total total Chinese dollars to, total money um, by the year 2020. They will they will supplant the United States. And, and most honest economists are saying that that's the case and have been for a while. But I always try to look deeper. And what I said years ago, and I've said many times between then and now, is that that will be done, uh, at least in part through Africa and the development of Africa that China has been very active in all these years. But I coined the term, I believe, China's China, that Africa would be China's China. I don't really remember hearing that from anybody else, and that's why I said China needs their own China. Uh, I'll explain what I mean by that after I read this to you, because it's, it's, it's uh, well, it's validating when you see someone like Bloomberg saying what you've been saying for so long. It proves you're not the crazy quack that people claim you of being. You know, people say all the time, oh, what you listen to this guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, here you go. Ethiopia becomes China's China in global search for cheap labor. Ethiopian workers strolling through the parking lot at Huan Shu's factory outside Adidas Ababa last month chose the wrong day to leave their shirts untucked. Company president Zhang Horong just arrived on a visit from China, spotted them through the window, sprang up and ran outside. The former People's Liberation Army soldier harangued them loudly in Chinese, 
tugging at one man's aqua polo shirt and forcing another shirt into his pants. None plus the worker stood silently until the eruption subsided. That's what it's like to work for the Chinese folks. Uh, shaping up a handful of employees is one small part of Zhuang's quest to profit from Huan's factory wages of about $40 a month, less than 10% the level in China. Yeah, everybody in China makes $2 a day. Let me read that again. Factory wages are about $40 a month, less than 10% the level of China, which would mean the Chinese wage was $400 a month. That's not $2 a day, just if you can do math. Critical thinking. Stop believing what the TV tells you. Do some mathematics. I'm just saying. Uh, quote, Ethiopia is exactly like China 30 years ago. <laughs> See, Jack's not crazy, said Zhuang, 55, who quit the military in 1982 to make shoes for his home in Jiangxi province with three sewing machines and now supplies such brands as Nine West and Guess. Uh, the poor transportation infrastructure, lots of jobless people. Almost three years after Sang began his Ethiopian adventure at the invitation of the late Prime Minister Melis Zawani, he says he's unhappy with profits at the Dungon Huan Shoes Industry Company unit, frustrated by, quote, widespread inefficiency, end quote, in the local bureaucracy and struggling to raise factory productivity from a level, he says, is about a third that of China. Four tongues, transportation and logistics that cost as much as four times those in China are prompting Juan to set up its own trucking company and use the, and the use of four languages in the plant, Ethiopian's national language, Amharic of the local tongue, Ormo, uh, English and Chinese, further complicates operations, Sang says. It takes two hours to drive 18 miles in the Huang factory from, cap from the capital along the country's main artery, illustrating the challenges. Oil tankers and trucks... Scream along the bumpy pothole and at times unpaved roads. Goats, donkeys, and cows wander along the roadside, occasionally into bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. Mini buses and dented taxis, mostly blue ladas from the country's past uh, as a Soviet ally, weave through oncoming traffic, coughing smoggy exhaust. Juan is nonetheless becoming a case study of Ethiopia's emerging potential as a production center for labor-intensive products and shoes to T-shirts and handbags. In a country where 80% of the labor force is agriculture, Manufacturers don't have to worry about finding new workers. Its population is about 96 million, which is Africa's second largest after Nigeria's. A combination of cheap labor and electricity and a government striving to attract foreign investment makes Ethiopia more attractive than many other African nations, said Deborah Bottingham, author of The Dragon's Gift, A Real Story of China in Africa, and a professor of international development and comparative politics at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Washington. These universities just have to keep making their names longer and longer to sound more important. Uh, they are trying to establish conditions for transformation, uh, Broding said in a telephone interview. It could become the China of Africa, no doubt. That's what a genius is saying now, and a redneck said six years ago. Once 3,500 workers in Ethiopia produced 2 million pairs of shoes last year, located in one of the country's first government-supported industrial zones. The factory began operating in 2012, and only three months after Zhang decided to invest, it became profitable in its first year and now earns $100,000 to $200,000 a month, he said, calling it an insufficient return that will rise as workers become better trained. Yeah, see, in China, everything's owned by the government, and there's no room for individual entrepreneurship. And wait a minute, this guy's not happy making $100,000 to $200,000 a month. <laughs> you can read the rest of this if you want to. I'll put a link in today's show notes. I want to talk about more what's going on. Let, let me give you the Jack Spiracle no-bullshit explanation as to what's going on here. China's investing shitloads of money, both from their um, 
their entrepreneurs uh, directly and from the nation as a whole in the development of nations like Ethiopia to move a lot of their operations as far as the manufacturing of labor-intensive goods to Africa. Because even though Chinese labor costs a lot less than American labor, by the time you go through all the bullshit that it takes to actually produce a good and ship it from China to the United States, they're becoming less and less competitive with products made in the United States by Americans. By the time they pay their small tariff, which is really small, but all the other logistics, that it's, it's getting harder and harder uh, in certain sectors anyway for them to compete with American labor. So they're going to go ahead and, and, and develop this place in Africa into something that would be akin to uh, their China. And when I say their China, it's like our China, right? So we use China for a lot of our growth over the years, especially since the 70s when Nixon gave the most favored nation status. Little factoid here before we move forward. Do you know what most favored nation status means? It doesn't mean that you're favored over other nations. It's the most favored status that you can get. So that means we treat, it doesn't mean China gets an advantage over Japan. It means if both China and Japan have the most favored nation status, they both get equal terms. That's all it means, right? So when Nixon opened up trading with China, the U.S. was in a deep recession. What's that like? Anyway, um, so there was a lot of things that were spurred to develop economically in the United States when all of a sudden thousands and tens of thousands of U.S. companies had access to cheap goods from China. First it was just cheap imports, but then it became all different types of things that could be outsourced to China, but yet led to greater economic activity in the United States. And eventually we went into a, a situation where we lost a lot of our manufacturing and production capacity, but a lot of people made a shitload of money. And overall, the economy did pretty damn good from about 1975 all the way up till now, in spite of the recessions that came in between. You, you can't argue with the success. And now we're sitting in this mired state, where China is the United States in 1955. Okay? Now, when I said that this was originally going to happen, people said I was crazy. Why the hell would you outsource labor and things to Africa when you have people that work for $400 a month right there in China? Because those people in China are going to be making a lot more than $400 a month in five years. There's going to be a rapid inflationary curve in China as the economy develops there. And they, to, to maintain the global dominance curve that they have set the, their course to, they have to have a way to get a lot of shit done for less. And they have to have a place to do a lot of shit their people don't want to do as their people go up, upwardly mobile and more and more Chinese move into the blue-collar, upper-middle-class category for China anyway. Maybe not for us, but for their quality of life. What happens is people move up in, the, in their stations in life. Their willingness to do certain things goes down. So they need, they need a China of their own. They need a partner or group of partners to do for them what they did for us. And, and, and it, you know, it wasn't just China. It was Japan. It was the Philippines. It was India. And it was China. And it was Vietnam. And it was Malaysia. There's all these developing nations were part of the United States' success model. Get things done for less there by people who do what your people don't want to do anymore, and that is a direct consequence of an economic system that is driven by money leverage. So companies in, in a developing nation where they have an upwardly mobile group of people to sell to and a developing economy to sell to know that they are better off leveraging their money 
and making money with leverage than making money by being a producer. And for a nation to go from what the U.S. was in 1955 to being what the United States was by the year 2000, the most dominant economic force ever conceived of in the world. In this economic system, you can't do it as a manufacturing economy. You have to have some manufacturing, but you have to have a whole lot of monetary leverage. And if you're going to use monetary leverage to get somewhere, someone else has got to do your shit work. Okay? This is how I knew this was going to happen, because this is how we got here. For all the bitching, China's taking America jobs and all, our economy skyrocketed because of China. Now, the Chinese, I think, are poor historical students. What you end up with is an inept nation that can't do shit anymore, like we are. But hey, you can do really good for 50 to 100 years while that occurs. That's China's path. And they need an undeveloped place in the world to do it with. Why did I know it would be Africa before people like Bloomberg would come out and say it's Africa? Because it's the last place. It's the last place that China could do it. When you look at the, the BRIC alliance, Brazil, Russia, India, China, they can't do it in India, Russia, or Brazil. They can partner with Brazil, Russia, and India, but Brazil, Russia, and India are on the same path China are on. Upward mobility, development of their own economies, outsourcing of shit work, utilizing capital leverage by utilizing low-cost work in other places, using an investment model uh, for make, using money to just make money rather than using money to make stuff. So all four of those nations need... India's next, guys. India's going to start... They have a billion people in their all those call centers, and you watch. You watch India go into the African market next. The South American market is not real friendly to China. China's all over Panama and some other parts of Central America because when the U.S. left and stopped managing the canal, the Panamanians couldn't do it for themselves, and it created a vacuum... But, you know, Panama, you know, it's not like China can go in and turn Panama into, into what it can turn Africa into. It's not big enough. There's not enough people. There's not, a, there's not, the, the economy sucks, but it doesn't suck anywhere near as bad. Um, you look all through Central and South America, there's nowhere with the combination of the desperate population that'll do anything for a little money and the amount of people, the num, the sure body count necessary to serve a nation that has over a billion people of its own. So China won't wholesale outsource everything it's doing. That's not going to happen. It's going to take a long time. Just with the body count they have in China and how much cheap labor is still in China. But they're going to selectively do this, and they're going to follow the same model we did, and they're going to do it in Africa. And remember, a, a, a redneck coal miner's son from Pennsylvania that now lives in Texas told you this six years ago, and Bloomberg is telling you this today. It's... It's a natural consequence. But again, I want you to understand, see, what's happening is less important than why. It's happening because our economic system makes no sense. Our economic system no longer rewards productivity. It rewards smart gambling. A company can make more money installing a computer in a data center that's on the other side Uh, of of the freaking river from from the stock exchange so that it can be one millisecond faster in executing high-frequency trades and having that computer run an algorithm that runs high-frequency trading, which is just buying and selling lots of stock really, really fast and skimming small points of profit as quickly as possible than it can by building cars or buses or trucks. So why wouldn't it? We, we have created an economy 
where people make money by not producing anything. And they have a higher profit margin with less risk associated with that activity than having employees and having to make them tuck their shirt in and yell at them in different languages and all this other stuff. So you almost wonder, well, why does anybody do the manufacturing anymore? Why does anybody go in that business? Because there's still a lot of money to be made. And for all this other stuff to work at the high end, someone has to do the shit at the bottom. So that creates this multi-tiered environment, and people like this Huang guy, they will figure out wherever the highest level they can fit in, and they'll go in there and they'll capitalize on that. That's that's you know the little bit of capitalism that's left. It's capitalizing on the opportunity that's available to you at the highest level possible. But but again, for these high level financial shenanigans to go on, people still have to eat and drink. People have to get medicine. People have to have jobs. Roads have to be built. People have to believe in the system so that they'll allow the system from ex to extort from them. The population has to believe there's, there's a path for me. There's hope. And I can work for $4 a day or whatever it is and eventually be, do better for myself. And the way I'll work for $4 a day is if everybody around me is making two and I can make four and that actually feeds my family, I'll work for $4 a day. I can tell you right now that you could be happy making $4 a day. I, I, I don't just mean like, the, you know, the, we talked about the myth last week of money not buying happiness, right? But you're going you're gonna to sit there and think right now, there's no way that I could have a job making $4 a day and be happy. Really? Really? All I have to do is use a time machine to send you back to a time when $4 a day bought you what, let's say, $4,000 a day buys you now. And it, in, in the lens of human history, it isn't that long ago. See, if, if $4 a day was, let's say that you would be happy right now to work for $800 a week. For $800 a week. If I made $4 a day, right, or on a five-day work week, 20 bucks. if I had an economy where $20 bought what $800 buys today, and you had been living on $5 a week, and now you can work and earn 20 and that's equivalent to an $800 a week salary right now, you would gladly work for the $20 if you would gladly work for the $800. Some people would say, that's forty grand a year, it's not enough. But a lot of people, forty grand a year, it's a good job. Happy with it. So this is what you have to understand. The reason you go in and capitalize on these nations is because I don't know that $4 a day is equivalent to $800 a day here. It probably isn't. But is it relatively equivalent? Now, what is relatively equivalent? A $40,000 a year job in this country does not make a person wealthy. It doesn't make them a high income earner. It doesn't put them in a position where they don't have to worry about money anymore. Um, but a person making 40 grand a year in this country, even with a wife and two kids, as long as they're not trying to live in Manhattan or something like that, and regardless of how it happens, whether it's with subsidies, government assistance, entitlement programs, we can argue the issues of that night and day, and most of you know I'm a libertarian, I want as little government as possible, and so that shit shouldn't be there. But let's just, you gotta put that, you gotta put what you want on the shelf to evaluate that which, which is, okay? So, at $800 a week, right, you can live in Housing that the average person would look at and go, it's acceptable, safe housing for a family to live in. You can put food on the table. 
You won't be eating, you know, friggin' Delmonico and ribeye steaks. But you can put food on the table, and no one has to go to bed truly hungry. Okay? Got it? You can have a means of transportation, and as long as you're not driving 150 miles to work and back, you can afford to put enough gas in the car to go to the store, to go to town, and to go to work. Okay? You can have clothing on your child's back that people would look at and say it's reasonably serviceable clothing. It's not boutique clothing, but it's reasonably serviceable. Anybody that's going to tell me you can't live as a family of four on $40,000 a year, put it in the comments section and watch as you get beat up by countless members of this audience that are doing that and more right now. Flat out, it can be done. It's not easy, but it can be done. And you can live a life where somebody would look at you and go, that person is not in the poorhouse. They might be at the edge of it, but they're not in it. And their family can be relatively content. It's, and I would say it's good that you want more because maybe if you want more, you'll get more because you'll work for it. Okay? But you can live that way. And with certain things and, 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 and that are available, like that family probably qualifies now for freaking food stamps and what have you, they can live a little bit better than the money would indicate alone. Regardless of why, there's a certain quality of life a person with a family and $40,000 a year can live. Again, I wouldn't be content with it. I'm not saying you got it made in the shade. I'm just saying it can be done. And many, many Americans are doing that and doing so on even less. Okay. Now, in Ethiopia, that $40 a month provides the same thing. If you moved it here, it wouldn't look the same. In other words, what they define as safe, serviceable, reasonable housing is a much lower standard than we do, but their society has accepted it as being safe, reasonable housing. Especially if two parents are working or the oldest son's working and it's $80 a month. They're able to, they're able to keep clothing that would not be good enough for a person here at that income. But and you're probably looking more like a family of four making $25,000 a year. It's probably more like the equivalent. And it's still below that. But their society is such that, boy, you got it better than those guys over there with flies on their face where they're shooting that commercial to get those people over in America to send us rice. Right? You're doing better than them. You got it? Well, if you're going to be a country like China where it is today, seeking... To follow the blueprint of the United States from a success quotient economic standpoint, not from a political standpoint, though the two, poli the two sides of politics are getting closer every day, um, but, but that's the goal is to have a large growing middle class, a developing automotive industry, uh, developing a, a highway system within your own nation, more and more people moving out of the countryside into the city and contributing to the good of the state, which is all the things I'm describing the United States as goals in 1950 then you need a place that's like that so that you can extort it to the means of your own end. And that's why China chose Africa, because it's the last place left that's that bad off where they have free reign to go do this. So there you go. That's how I knew it would happen. Here's an interesting and fun one from John. John says, How often do people accuse you of actually working for the government, that you're actually trying to brainwash preppers or something like that? Two, what is the wackiest thing any of your listeners ever accused you of? Man, I'll have to think about the second one. The first one, you know, am I, am I ever accused of being like, 
working for the man, working for the government, trying to mislead preppers by being too rational and common sense and talk them off of the edge. Yeah, but they're always the complete whack jobs, you know? That, that's, that's the, they're, they're mainly complete and total whack jobs that do that. And it's, it's not frequent. It's a few times a year that I'll get an email like, you're actually on the inside, man. You're here to infiltrate us. And yeah, I just delete. I, I don't even respond to that. Um, I think maybe the most ironic thing, not the craziest, but the most ironic thing that I'm accused of being is not working for the government, but being a liberal or being for big government. Um, because I will actually be rational and I, I won't just, um, you know, say stupid crap like everything that the Republicans say is good or, or that I'll acknowledge that there is you know, at times where the government's maybe doing something I don't like, but like it's it's a valid thing, and I understand why it's being done, or or something like that, or or if I'll defend something that is typically thought of as a liberal position, but it's a social position, not a government position. If I'll, I'll say something like, you know, I think it's preposterous that there's a law against marijuana at all in this country because it's a plant, and I don't think that one man should tell another man what the hell he can or cannot do with a plant. That it's just preposterous. And I'll, I'll get emails or comments or calls saying that, you know, you're clearly just this big government liberal. Well, I, I don't think saying we should repeal a law makes me big government at all. It may make me liberal on a position, which is, by the way, part of being a libertarian. That you have certain things that you're very liberal about. Those basically being what other people do with themselves as long as they don't have anybody they're harming. Right, so so there's that. That, in other words, there, you can be liberal without being liberal in in regards to pol politics, right? Because it's not that I'm liberal politically; it's that I'm liberal in the standpoint of this action should not have government doing anything about it at all, even if we do have a state, even if we're not into you know anarcho-capitalism. That there are certain things that a reasonable person, if you pull yourself out of the brainwashing, will look at and go, government doesn't need to be doing that. Right? If a guy wants to grow a plant, smoke it, eat it, wrap it around his head, or shove it up his ass, government doesn't need to be saying nothing about it. Now, if he wants to do something with it with somebody else, maybe. Depends. Is he hurting them? And is that person using their own free will to choose to consent and do whatever it is with that plant the other person wants to do? In other words, if I want to sell you a plant and you want to smoke it, I don't think that's the government's business. If I want to sell you a plant so you can smoke it and you're nine years old and you're a child, I think it is the government's business. Because I don't think a child of that age can make a rational, logical decision about whether or not they smoke dope or not. Okay, so I see. I do see a point where there should be some rules or requirements. So, but because the person doesn't get that in context, first time they're exposed to me or whatever, you're a big government liberal hippie because you're for legalizing marijuana. I thought that you know people that were for small government would be for the repealing of laws, but. Not if you've been brainwashed. So that's the most, the, the most ironic thing that I get accused of is, is not, again, not working for government, being for big government, being a, a go, big government liberal, uh, which is just, if you know my show and my track record, it's, it's, it's preposterous. And to be fair to the people that listen to the show, I often get that opinion from people if I post an opinion on YouTube, because it just shows you the mental program of somebody. In other words, there was a, a video where a cop broke a girl's window and pulled her out of the car. 
I said, in this instance, the cop was right because she was told she was detained. She was told to exit the vehicle. She tried to shut the window on the cop's arm. That's what broke the window. And at that point, he had every you know legal right to pull her out of the car. Do I think she should have been pulled over for a safety infraction in the first place? No, but by the law, this is right. Oh, you're a big government liberal cop lover. See, and that's, that's the thing. It's not me that's accused of that. It's anybody... Who uses common sense anymore? And this is how you know the nation's polarized into idiocy on both sides. If you take anything approaching what you would consider a moderate position or an independent thought position, both sides will crucify you. We're now into a society where everybody has to be polarized to the extreme or it's not good enough. So that's, that's kind of the most ironic thing. The craziest things I've been accused of... Um, I have been accused of, of supposedly working for the NSA. Uh, I've been accused of that by more than a few people. Um, I've been frequently accused because I have the audacity to say that man-made global warming due to CO2 does not measure up to scientific fact. It just doesn't. That when we look at it and we take consensus out, because consensus proves nothing, and we actually look at the facts and we look at the physical laws of the universe and the way shit works and a, and a logical long-term look, it looks like humans are totally screwing up the planet. They're totally screwing up the environment. They're polluting the shit out of everything. And we're causing all kinds of, let's say, regional climate instability, like a giant dead zone at the, the Gulf of Mexico. So you're saying all these things. like These are all places where we're doing bad shit, and we should stop polluting. And then I'm accused of being a shill for the oil companies. That's, that's probably the, the, the craziest or wackiest thing that me, a guy who runs a podcast for myself, is, 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 I mean, I've been accused not just being a shill in this, this, this way, this reactionary way, That, that all of these environmental whack jobs do anymore. Everybody that disagrees with them is a shill for Shell Oil and BP, right? But to, to fully and wholly accuse, like, that I'm actually on their payroll. Like, Shell Oil Company is writing me, Jack Spirico, a check for services rendered every month for, for, a, for opposing global warming and, and carbon taxation. Well, there's two crazy things about that. If you listen to the totality of my message, there's no way you can come up with that because I am so much an environmentalist. I'm just not a gov. I don't believe in government enforcing environmentalism because the government's the, the 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 person that's empowering the greatest amount of polluting right now by the large corporations and stifling the small guy from competing with them. So that's preposterous. That, that I'm on the, the you know the, the payment of, uh, of the oil companies to, to stop this legislation. But what's what's even I guess I would say a little wackier about that is that Shell Oil's all for a carbon tax. Like you have to be so uninformed to not understand that that if there's a carbon tax and a and a carbon exchange credit system, a cap and trade system, Shell Oil Company is going to make billions. Doing what I was just talking about in the, in the whole conversation about China. They're going to make money for not doing anything. They're going to make billions to reduce emissions with technologies they already have planned. Or to shut down production in an area. So they can reduce emissions just by producing less. Well, what happens when oil refineries produce less oil? What happens to the price of oil? It goes up. So what what happens to their unit production costs? That's the whole reason OPEC is in existence. To prevent 
the companies, the countries we import oil from, from reducing production just for the, the sole purpose of increasing the cost per gallon. So this cap-and-trade system will effectively allow our corporations to play that game. You see how that works? So not only is it crazy because, well, if you listen to what I'm saying, I'm actually in favor of cutting pollution and of informing people how many toxins are being put into the environment by people like Shell Oil, but two, that people actually think Shell Oil is opposed to cap and trade. You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. People say, well, look at all the money they have, and, and they're the ones promoting all If Shell Oil and BP and Texaco and Exxon, etc., at all, wanted to go out on a campaign telling America that CO2 AGW is BS, which is global warming, anthropomorphic global warming caused by CO2, was bogus, that your TV would be telling you that every five seconds. They have more money damn near than God when you put them together. The amount of money they've spent in supposed anti-global warming campaigns is a mouse fart to them. It doesn't pay the CEO of, of, of Shell Oil's gas bill for his freaking G5 jet. They don't even care. They do just enough to feign resistance. They don't care. They want it. It's a Ponzi scheme that makes them billions. So that's another thing I've been accused of. What else have I been accused of? Um, I have been accused by one idiot of keeping a list of all preppers that provide to FEMA. And that's why I tell them not to, you know. But I, I do want to point out that these these accusations are not run-of-the-mill every day. These are very infrequent. They were actually a lot more frequent in the early days. First couple years, I got a lot of this crazy nonsense. I think the attitude I've conveyed over the years has pretty much made those people go away. Because it's like, I don't give a shit about you. See, the people that do stuff like this, they do this stuff to attract attention. They're the people like, look at me, look at me, look at me, right? They're like the kid in, 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 I remember this kid when I was in first grade that threw a tantrum. Like a tantrum, not that a first grader would throw, but a tantrum that like a three-year-old would throw. Threw himself to the floor and started screaming and kicking and just kicking the desk and just whining and crying. And the teacher, being a very enlightened teacher in a small Catholic school that wasn't encumbered by all the crap that we have today with teacupism, just said, don't anybody dare look at, talk to, or in any way give this credence. Turn your heads, do your work, and ignore him. And if I see you look at him, you'll go to the principal. So all the kids ignored him. The teacher ignored him. He went on for about 10 or 15 minutes We were like laughing, doing our work, and the teacher would just walk over, and because he couldn't see her, just walk in front of us and do like the cut your throat thing, but not like threatening to cut your throat, just basically like shut it, right? So that he didn't even know he was getting that response, just zip it, right? And after about 15 minutes, he shut up and he never did it again, right? That's how these people are. They're like tantrum throwers. These are the same idiots. It's more interesting to answer the question from what have, what have you seen people do that just proves that they're mentally imbalanced online in this liberty space and all. It, the people that think it's all, all the, all the Illuminati is all devil worship, right? There's, I, I swear to God, there's this whole contingent of people that watch every YouTube video of everybody they hate looking for the devil salute. 
looking for any point in time that this person's uh, you know middle finger and ring finger came in and their their pinky and their pointer finger came up as though that never happens in a natural gesture pointing at something or scratching your face or whatever and they're like this celebrity worshiping the devil look at timestamp two minute thirty seconds. And this newscaster is a devil worshiper. Those are the people that I think they're just freaking mentally sick, right? But they're also that kid, look at me, I'm throwing a tantrum, look at me. And they want somebody to respond to them. And occasionally I do, because occasionally you're just like, you're a moron. But they want that engagement, they want that argument. I, I, I think it's preposterous. I've never been accused of that. Um, being for Beelzebub or whatever. I'm sure there's people that think it, but I've never been accused of it. Like, But I said, the biggest thing is you're a shill for sale oil company. You're on their payroll. And I'm like, you know, I live a pretty good life, but have you seen my house? Have you seen the clothes that I wear? I mean, I'm not exactly an oil exec or on the payroll of an oil exec. Um, I find that just, just laughable. Not to mention, I don't think my influence is big enough one way or the other for Shell Oil or anybody of that size to give a shit about what I have to say. I, you know, I'm not Rush Limbaugh or Glenn Beck or, you know, uh, even a small player like a Michael Medved. I, I reach 100,000 people a, a day. That's significant in our space, but in the mass media space, that's, that, 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 you, that means nothing to them. That means nothing to people like that. I, I don't have a company, you know, doing $50 million a year in, in, in sales that wants to partner with, with TSP. Let alone, you know, somebody that's measuring their sales in billions. It, it's preposterous. That's probably the craziest thing just because it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and again, most of these things show this extreme polarization. That, that's my takeaway from it. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up there today. I know we didn't come a lot of stories, but I think that the, the, that we've covered really important stuff today. Um, I do want to finish today, though, with a little bit of uh, some words of encouragement in, in the prepper space, not just so much the life coaching space that we've been or the lifestyle design space that we've been, been talking about a lot lately. Um, sometimes for a while I'll get so focused on all the things that we can do as you know modern homesteaders, modern survivalists, and the things that the solutions we can put in place that I, I come away a little bit from the basic preparedness, a blackout kit, a bug out kit, vehicle kits, food storage, and things like that. I, I want you to understand the reason that we always go back to that as our fundamentals, our core. When I played football, you know, no matter how advanced the playbook got, as soon as the play got a little bit sloppy. And, and usually the players knew we're getting a little bit sloppy out there. Man, you came in on the next practice, and it's men, we're working on fundamentals. Oh, there's a little tip for you, parents out there. When I first started playing football, my first year that I ever played football, I was a little bitty kid. I was 11 years old, first football league I ever played in. I was just trying to make sure I was accurate. 11 years old. My coach would say, men. Get over here, men. Give me some push-ups, right? Men and guys. You want your children to behave like men, your young boys to behave like men? Use the word men with them. Say, I expect you to behave like a young man. I remember my grandmother saying that when I was tiny. Not a, not a young boy, not a big boy. A young man. Just an aside there. But anyway, when we got a little sloppy, it's like, man, we're going to be slogging it out, guys. We're going to be doing the drills, the old drills that we did when we were 11 years old, even when we were in high school. And I tell you, it happens. I never played at the collegiate level. It was not big enough and not good enough, just to be blind. But 
I know from friends that went on to play there, that same, you're getting sloppy, we're going back to the fundamentals. Happens there, and I know it happens even at the, the NFL elite pro level. It's getting sloppy, whole team's going back to fundamentals. Run the same drills you ran when you were in Pop Warner. That is prepping for this whole liberty-based independence, modern survival lifestyle. That's the insurance package. That's the insurance package. You insure your life, so if you die, your wife is not without the money that used to be there from your income. She depends on you. This makes sense to anybody with a brain. That's why we have life insurance. right? There's a law that makes you have car insurance, at least a certain amount, and then if you're borrowing to buy a car, the lender makes you insure the entire car. But most people, once they get out of that youthful age where the insurance costs more than the car's worth, choose to have car insurance because it is a valuable product if something goes wrong. So we, there's all types of insurances that we carry. If you're borrowing money to buy a house, they make you insure the property. But most people, once they pay their house off, maintain insurance on the property because they know it's a valuable thing that if the house burns down or is blown over in a, in a storm or something like that, that they, they can't afford to just replace it out of pocket. So they carry the insurance they can afford to replace what they lose. In your walk toward independence, liberty, freedom, and in designing your own lifestyle, there is going to be multiple things that come along, and you're walking along, you're happy, you're singing the TSP lifestyle, make your own way, and the others will follow. You're just happy, and all of a sudden, life just walks up to you, rears back, and right between the eyes, punches you in the eyes. You're like, that sucks. And just as you're getting your, your, your shit together and going, okay, I got over that one, you know, life comes walking back up and you're like, oh, what do you want now? And you stick your hands up to protect your face and pop right between the legs, right? You guys have, ex I know you, I've written enough, uh, letters of encouragement back to, to those of you that have had it happen. You know it happens. You know it happens. You know? Someone gets hurt, someone gets sick, someone dies, there's a storm, there's something that comes along. There's an unexpected job loss. All the things we talk about, sooner or later we all deal with some of it. A little extra money, a little extra food, a little extra planning, all the things we do as preppers. When those events occur, not if they occur. Those are the insurance policy that lets us say, okay, this sucks. This sucks. Dad just lost his job. And I know someone I care about deeply that just lost their job. Very good paying job. Not the kind of job you just walk down the street and replace. And I can't say that person's living the lifestyle I recommend. I wish they were. I wish I could help. There's not much I can do for this person. But it happens. And when it happens to you, and you can go, you know what? Maybe it's not the, the big ribeye steaks we've been accustomed to, but there's enough food laid up that and we're going to have enough money and enough of an income left over and all the other things that we have in place that we can still go to the store and buy some stuff every week if that's what we need to do. But I'm not even worried about whether I'm going to feed this family for 60 to 90 days. Flat out, if we had to, we could shut the door, lock it, and feed everybody for 60 to 90 days. That's a, So you've just had your, your balls kicked by life. And now there's this giant backpack on your back and up over your head. And it's full of giant weights. It's not one giant weight. It's full of all these giant weights. How am I? How can I? What do I? All that shit, 
right? And as soon as you realize that, it's like somebody just walked along, stuck their hand in that backpack, pulled took a 50-pound plate, yanked it out, threw it on the ground, and said, that one doesn't apply to you anymore. And your back just goes a little straighter, a little more upright, and you go, okay, I can carry this load a little bit better now. And then you think to yourself, how am I going to pay the bills? And you start feeling the weight of that packing, and you say, wait a minute, the bills are the electric bill, which we can cut, By being a little bit more miserly than we've been, it's it's the rent or the mortgage, and it's the basic utilities and things like that. But we paid off our debt. <sighs> Guy walks back up, yanks another 50-pound plate off, throws it on the ground. You look at 100 pounds sitting on the ground, all of a sudden it feels a little bit lighter. And you start thinking, okay, it's not so bad. And then you start thinking, well, you know, um, what about the kids? Like They're not going to be able to do all the activities that they've done until we get this rectified. And then you think to yourself, but we've taught them all these new skills, and we, we go out and we, we do stuff together, and there's so many things we can do that don't cost money, and I'm not going to be working until I figure out how to fix this shit out, so I'm actually going to be able to spend more time with them, and, I'm, and even though I'm going to work really hard to get back on my feet, I'm going to use this time to continue the work that I've done to cultivate that relationship Bump! Another 50 pounds goes on the ground. And all of a sudden you're going, I'm not happy about this backpack that I'm carrying, but God, God, it's a lot lighter than I thought it was. So now I can think clearly, I can not be reactionary, and I can put my shit back together. That's what prepping does for you. The next time you're talking to one of your friends about, and you're trying to get them open to at least a little bit of a preparedness lifestyle, and they're like, hey, you're one of those crazy people from Doomsday Preppers, try explaining it that way. Try explaining it that way. So that they'll get, oh, wait a minute. All that shit could happen, and boy, that would suck. And when they tell you, I'll never lose my job, I work for the government. <laughs> At some point, you stop casting your pearls among swine. But I, you know, when somebody tells me there's no way I'll ever lose my job, I laugh at them. And I don't have to make up a laugh. I just, <laughs> you really believe that, don't you? I'm not saying you're going to. I'm saying the belief that it can't happen is foolish. And it's a protectionist belief. I don't want to look at the, you know, that's the same thing. Women do it all the time when you tell them, you know what, you should you should get a concealed carry permit. You should learn how to use a gun. You should carry pepper spray. You should work on your situational awareness. You should keep your head up when you're walking. You should never look like a victim. You should stay out of that side of town. Right? All these things. And... They're like, well, who would ever hurt me? Millions of people would hurt you, dumbass! But they don't want to see it. Right? Most of you know at least one woman in your life like that. My wife's not like that, but she can be like that in a situation. I remember long ago, long before I, I you know, we, we were at anywhere near this stage in our relationship. We were very new in our relationship. We stopped somewhere. It was like a gas station and a liquor store, and we were picking up a bottle of wine to go see some friends. And I don't remember the exact way this worked out, but one way or another, she walked very far away from me, not in the store, which would have been a little concerning there, but not that. I mean, I wouldn't even go to a place that was that bad, but in the parking lot. I'm like, what are you doing? Get over here. <laughs> and she's like, I didn't know this was a bad area. I'm like, it is. You know, and the thing is, if you're really being situationally aware, when you're in an area that could be a bad area, There's things that alert you to that, right? So it's that same, it's that same situational 
uh, or lack of situational awareness. It's that same normalcy bias. It's that same perception bias that makes that friend of yours that won't pay attention to prepping at all ignore it because I can't think that anything bad would happen or it might. That's what they're really saying. You know? Or the other thing is, there's the other thing, and it's the far more disempowering thing. Sure, bad things can happen, but there's nothing I really can do about it. Um, when I started researching the Balkan Wars, after I had Selco on the show, who has the website, uh, Shit Hit the Fans, SHFT School or Plan, whatever it is, um, he's a survivor of the, of the Balkan Wars. Uh, when I had him on, I started researching a little bit more. And I actually started finding comments from people that lived through it themselves, that didn't prepare, that said prepared, being prepared wasn't worth anything. The people that were prepared might have went a little longer before they were hungry, but they were eventually hungry too. And people that actually been through this, this real world shit at the fan beyond what anybody in America who's never served overseas anyway can even understand said it's not worth being prepared, even though they went through it. And it was just, what they were basically saying is, I can't accept that I could actually be capable of solving my own problems. To prep, you have to believe that you can solve your own problems. To prep, you have to believe that what you do matters. So when I come away from like hardcore prepping for a while, don't think it's ever gone away. It's I've put out so much material over that over so long And if you want to share, like when somebody says to me, why don't you do a back-to-basics prepping show? I probably should. I probably will in the next month. But I can't do one every week. Look one up and share that with your friends. But explain to people when they ask, why do you prepare? Explain it that way. That there's all kinds of things in life that can go wrong. And that when they do go wrong, it doesn't necessarily mean you're dead. It doesn't necessarily mean you're stranded on a rooftop with, with 12 feet of water rising to the rooftop. What it means is that there's incredible weight placed on you to try to get out of the problem. And when you make bad decisions in a problem, you get hurt. Bad becomes worse when you make a bad decision. And bad decisions are common when you feel like you don't have any other choice. You make reactionary choices. And if we can lighten that load with preparedness, when something goes wrong in life, we can stop and think and use our tools and put our life back on course more rapidly and more accurately. Because the goal is to get where we're going. And every time I put you off course, the more prepared you are, the more likely you are to still be able to get where you're going. If you're in a bicycle marathon race, and you have to drive 100, 120 miles on a bicycle, something definitely doable in a day, well, you better take a pump and an inner tube, because you're going to have a hard time completing that race if you get a flat. And it's pretty likely that you're going to get a flat. Whenever I watch the Iron Man, I always see guys with little wrenches and pumping. The, I mean, it happens, right? And it's not like it happens to one guy out of the whole group. You see a lot of people ending up having to do it. Well, that's what life's like. If you don't have any preparedness in your life, it's like taking a 120-mile bike journey without an inner tube and a pump and knowing how to change a tire. If you have a brain, you wouldn't do it. And if you do do it, you're not going to complete the race. And if you eventually complete the race, you're not going to do it the way you wanted to. Well, your life's more important than a bicycle ride. And with that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show you.